This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome to Mind Space. This is Jeff Boucher, and I'm here with Maya St. Clair. And this week, uh, we're going to get animated with a creative team from Fairfax, the new Amazon Prime animated series. It's so much fun. And uh, we have three guests, Maya. What are their names? Uh, yeah, they're the uh, creators and uh, showrunners and writers, Matt Hausvater, Teddy Riley, and Aaron Bushbaum. Uh, they're really funny guys, and they give us the inside scoop into this uh, extremely wonderful and weird and idiosyncratic show. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very eccentric. And, yeah. uh, How would you describe much... it? It's, it's ex- uh, sort of eccentric street-level uh, uh, meandering uh, essay about hype beasts is what I would say. And I, then someone would have to translate that sentence for me and tell me exactly what that meant. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like a combination of all those classic '80s, you know, media about groups of kids kind of having fun and coming of age, and you know, exploring childhood with a sense of wonder and enthusiasm. And also like a social commentary about our internet age. And then also kind of a fable about the rise and fall of the brand Supreme. <laughs> that yeah, you really true. have to see it to, to understand what it's about, but. Yeah, and it's true though. It does, it's definitely uh, a, a little tribe. There's a tribe mm-hmm. in the middle of it, just like, uh, you know, it's uh, like Stand By Me or any of those 80s yeah. movies. Uh, this one would be uh, Stand In Line instead of Stand By Me. Uh, mm-hmm. because you'd be waiting for the latest pop-up shop treasure at uh, the latrine store so yeah but uh we'll get into it let's, let's meet the guys and uh it should be a lot of fun so uh welcome to mind space and today we have a full house uh and everybody here resides on fairfax the new show on amazon prime and um it's great it's a great animated comedy series about uh, some middle school kids but I'll let them tell you more about it. Uh, guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Hey, what's up, Jeff? It's good to see you guys. It's good to talk to you. So we have Teddy, we have Aaron, and we have Matthew. And uh, tell us a little bit, maybe if you guys don't mind, just a little bit about what each of you do on the show. And uh, and also, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this to people? 
I'll let these guys start. Uh, we're all creators and executive producers and writers of the show. Um, on the production side, we all kind of share and wear every hat possible um, because of the time and the amount of work going on. Um, we found ways to kind of split up the work, but always kind of found ways to meet in the middle, check in on each other, and then kind of reach out to different departments. But I'd say we all kind of Jeff generally shared the duties of running the show and, and articulating our vision as best we could to the other writers in the animation studio to, to kind of help everybody make the same show. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll just add that like during, you know, mind you, we were making a show during COVID over the internet. Uh, we, we look at the production process and we look at how you make a show and we don't understand how some shows have only one creator. Like we truly would have, like, okay, so you're going to be in the writer's room. You're going to be watching episode four, giving notes on episode four. And then you're going to be working in art, trying to figure out what uh, like Principal Wesson looks like. You know, it was, we were always just all over the place. Uh, so thank God we had three people, you know, it was, it was like, I, when we hear about these creators that have, just like one creator that's managing an entire show. It's just like, there's no way they did everything. Like, there's no, they had to have people helping them out here and there. And like, it, it's just, I can't imagine being spread that thin. Oompa Loompas or something. I mean, there must be some sort of minions of some kind. That's right. <laughs> there has to be. It's and Matt, what is wrong with us? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I, don't, I, I think we, wrong, I don't know, but I think we all had, and I'll let the guys speak too, you know, we all grew up loving movies. We grew up in the 90s in this magical time where Walt Disney really came into its own with Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and Little Mermaid and Toy Story. And on top of that, you know, uh, independent cinema sort of exploded with Miramax and some movies like Pulp Fiction and Swingers and Go and Train Spotting and all these things that we loved you know, we wanted uh, to make our own version, whether it was the Mighty Ducks or Sandlot or something gritty like a Tarantino movie. I think what was wrong and right with us was that we wanted to put something that you could put on the shelf with those other things. While they may not tonally be in line with all of them, we had the same dream of like, you know, we want to buy a ticket to our own movie. We want to be able to turn on the channel and, and see a show that we created. Um, and hopefully other people would, would want to watch that program or movie. I can't wait for Reservoir Ducks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm now like you, I'm so ready for the Mighty Ducks Tarantino style. That is the crossover we're, we're, we need, you know, I mean, with Emilio Estevez off the project, I think that's the exact pivot that they need now. Yeah, and then uh, you could always go like Inglorious Angels in the Outfield after that. I mean, oh there's a God. lot of, there's so many be. ways to go. <laughs> Yeah, we love puns, uh, Jeff, which is uh, something we're hitting on. This yeah, is... you may have noticed. <laughs> yes, that, and there's a reason that I love this show. So it's uh, it, it appeals to me. On You know, Ben Franklin said that puns show a, a great command of language. Uh, I think if, just the way it sounds, it sounds like he was defending himself when he said that. I, I can't yeah. imagine why else you would say that. Yeah, I'm now getting the image of Benjamin Franklin annoying <laughs> all of his friends with puns. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and the key, the, the electric And defending himself. Yeah, I, I, the electrified I, key too, you know? I was going to I was going to add that like people, you know, obviously people are like writing to us and telling us like what they love most about this show now. 
And I've had like multiple people point out Big and Tallest, which is just the name of a store in the background of one scene. But Big and Tallest is such a hit for people. Yeah, and, Forrest uh, Gump is another good one that we Forrest love. Gump. Black Lactose Tolerance. Yep. Forrest Gump is very strong. One of our favorite ones. Yeah, there's a handful of great ones. And we, I mean, like. 1.21 Darawats. That was true. That's <laughs> the Ethiopian restaurant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw, uh, I, w I was, uh, this is such a casual, like, drop this in, like, little frank thing. Uh, I was at Skywalker Ranch, but they have a- Maybe you've heard of it. Yeah. They have this I'll little brag. coffee place. Yeah, they have this little coffee place called Java the Hut. And I was wow. like, wow. You wow. sons of bitches. Pretty that great. itself. That's hilarious. what? I hope there's a Java-like voice that's one frappuccino is ready. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, it's that a lot. There's a lot of that. Um, and the little guy, the, the little Muppet looking dude, uh, mm. he's there laughing away. I can't think of his name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget his name. That guy's great. Oh, no. I'm going to lose credibility with my listeners if I don't remember that name. <laughs> Maya, look it up. Tell Maya's me what it is. Maya's already oh. on it. Look it oh, up. Like and it in. <laughs> So with Fairfax, I mean, one of the, it's kind of, um, it's hard to believe that name hasn't been used before. Like, uh, it's such a great name. And when I hear Fairfax, I always, I don't know why, but I always think of like the old movies and like, get me Fairfax 311, you know, or, you know, yeah. Northside 777 or whatever. I, I don't know how those phone numbers worked, but I think we should bring them back. I think that would be awesome. And I want to be Whalebone 2121. Oh, that's a good one. I don't know why. <laughs> No wonder you love the whale episode. Exactly. When I yeah. live on, along the LA River and um, uh, my fiance is really involved in the LA River, uh, in the River Coalition. Um, oh, wow. The river, the river down here in Long Beach. Um, so uh, that one was, a. Uh, she, she watched it almost without humor. She was like ready to get upset about it. <laughs> yeah. And in the end, she couldn't, but she did laugh. So she was, she found it to be offensive. No, excuse me, not offensive. To be um, to be over the top, but not offensive. I think that's exactly what we're going for. Is like you're ready to be angry and hate us, but you can't help but love us. Like, yeah, that is kind of the perfect sweet spot for us. Yeah, it's, it's like my engagement too. It's uh, it's very similar. That's right. So now, um, how long? Tell us a little about the ramp up. Um, the show. If I remember right, it premiered around around Halloween, right? Yeah, yeah. It it came out at twenty ninth. And so when did when did um, tell me about the the ramp up to that moment? When did you guys start working on the project in, in earnest? And 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 uh, and what was the the sort of the texture of the the experience for you? Yeah, it was the longest and ramp up of all time. Really. It was, uh, when did we start? We probably started in like end of 2017, early 2018. We put the pitch together. Uh, we brought on the handful of producers that were kind of on the project. So there's serious business. Uh, well, they brought us on just for clarity. Yeah, they brought us on, correct. Yeah. But we, so we kind of came together, serious business, pizza slime and some hoodlum, the artists all came together we took this pitch out. It was like a, it was truly like a baseball team. Uh, we went out to the town and ended up selling it to Amazon and we sold it to Amazon before they had an animation division. So 
the development process took a took a, a bit of time. We we wrote two episodes. They were big fans of the episodes. They ultimately decided to to hire us to basically put the room together and write the first season of the show, but without production. Cause I think that there was like, they were still putting things in place on their end. So they were like, let's get this show written. Let's see how it looks. Uh, and then ultimately make the decision whether or not we want to actually put this into production. So we wrote the first season that took us into, uh, again, like was it 29, end of 20, end of the summer, yeah, end of summer 19. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the go fall, ahead, Teddy, keep, keep it going. Yeah, in the fall, like I think end of summer, fall, they finally decided to pick it up for two seasons. Um, and so we started production January 2020 mm -hmm. on season one. And there were about a month or two of pre-production with casting and getting designs developed. Our, our four main kids um, looked different, but you could still feel the DNA from the rougher drawings that we brought in to our pitch a few years prior. Um, but with Titmouse now on board, their, their big task was taking a lot of kind of uh, simple, and I say that in a good way, simple 2D designs and figuring out, okay, how do we make this a three-dimensional world that we can animate? Um, and that's what we kind of spent pre-production doing and just figuring out kind of how to translate some of them's palette to TV and also adding our, what our art director kind of helped create this really beautiful, vibrant neon dream of sunsets and, and sunrises and, you know, these just beautiful shots um, in all different types of worlds. And then um, production basically was on this train. Uh, and then about a year later, so uh, this past year, summer 2021, we wrote season two. And from, or summer 2020, I'm sorry. 2020, yeah, we wrote, we, wrote, we wrote all the way through COVID. So like, yeah, we were basically, we were in pre-production. We were designing a bunch of stuff early 2020. And the room was like being planned. The season two writer's room was being planned to kind of be a few months after that. After we had kind of like drawn our characters, we'd, we had really had like a kind of a basic code of what our show was going to look like. And smack dab in the middle of that COVID hit. And like before we knew it, like we, as soon as we move into our offices, they're like, all right, everyone pack up, you're going home. Yeah, uh, we, had, we had a, we had a, like a 40 person marketing meeting at Amazon on what I think is March 10th. Right. Uh, we really like launched a show and they said how excited they were. And we said how excited we were. And then that afternoon in the car on the way home was when the world found out Tom Hanks got COVID. And wow. then the next day, we were in our office and that was sort of pack up and uh, everybody go home. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we had about six months to work on season one production, which was a great, honestly ended up being a blessing in disguise, even though it took a while. Being able to write the first season was a huge blessing in disguise without worrying about production on top of that, because yeah. I'll mention mm -hmm. this was our, the three of us, it was our first time making an animated show. And so getting, the learning curve of that down was really helpful by the time season two writer's room started. Then we wrote season two over an 18 week period all over Zoom and then continued making season two about, there was maybe a month 
of writing before they started working on that first season two episode production. So there were these three parallel trains going on during all of 2020 and 2021. And we finished production. I don't remember exactly when we finished production of season one, you guys. I want to say like end of the summer uh, this past year or something, or maybe 4th of July this past year. But it was it's all a it's blur. clearly, it's all yeah, as you can tell, we've completely lost track of time. We've been in these, these we've been in these Zoom boxes together for the last two years. Um, but it, it was amazing and everybody working on the show um, really bought in and, and invested and helped bring this show to life. And, you know, to, to fast forward to a little bit more recently, we were planning kind of the marketing rollout and how we wanted the show to kind of uh, come out, what the trailer would look like, all of the really fun latrine stuff uh, that we were doing, all were ideas that dated back to the pitch. We wanted to do like, we thought doing like a real latrine pop-up kind of in the vein of dumb Starbucks um, would just be a really funny, sticky idea. And kind of those plans happened over the last few months and uh, finally kind of brought us to the show being released at long last. I, th I, I think sticky and latrine should never be in the same sentence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, I think you want to try to put some wedges between yeah, those. Yeah, can we edit it? You got to go through a... The stores and added in a few words. <laughs> uh, Salacious B. Crumb, by the way, was Jabba the Hutt's yes. uh, annoying, shrill little friend. Uh, sycophant, his, yeah. his sycophant. I think it was played by the same kid that was in Christmas Story that just, with the, the, the sidekick to the bully. Uh, that really? guy, no. It's just that they're oh, the same. Say, that's a stretch. Yeah, <laughs> they're just the same kind of guy. Yeah. Do you know, this is, okay, this is nuts. Um, do you guys know about the Christmas story deleted scene? No. Oh. It sounds like the setup to the worst joke. That sounds it? dirty in itself. Keep going. It does. It sounds like the worst setup to a dirty joke ever. Um, there is an entire sequence that they they dropped out but filmed um, for on Christmas story. And it's it's one of his little like sort of vignettes. And uh, there's the one where he goes and fights the old West guys, and then there's the one where it, He's sort of like in the uh, Perils of Pauline kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then the one they cut out was he goes to another, he goes to Mongo and meets Ming the Merciless and Flash Gordon. Wow. wow. We, were, we were robbed of a Flash Gordon cameo in that movie. The guy that played Flash Gordon is in the credits. It, it cut, cut so late. It still says Flash Gordon in the credits. No way. Wow. And, and all the footage is lost, but there's one still. Uh, if you, and if you Google, um, Christmas story. Well, you can use the search engine of your choice, actually. But uh, if you if you use your internet uh, search engine to find uh, Christmas story Flash Gordon, it'll pop right up. And I think the Flash Gordon's got the super cool kind of uh, Al Williamson uh, kind of style. Uh, yeah. Uh, costume, and I think that that would be the greatest cosplay ever. I am the Flash Gordon from the deleted scene of Christmas Story. That's like, oh, yes, that's, that's that is a apex. That's apex nerd. So yeah. Funny. How do you I not guess. do it now? Oh wow! Oh, wow! Oh, my God! <laughs> and and who knew that? What it looks like, Dennis Quaid. Like I yeah. think he missed like uh, his opportunity. But I feel bad for this Flash Gordon. I really want to talk to um, uh, Ralphie about that. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a great one. That's the only image they have. Yeah. 
Wow. Amazing. It's only one I've been able to find. You know, uh, it, it's there's like two things I've been searching for, and that's one of them. And the other one is the the deleted Harrison Ford uh, cameo from E.T. Uh, that they cut out. Wait, I don't know about this one either. Yeah, he was the principal of Elliot's school. And oh, okay. uh, there's the scene um, where, you know, uh, uh, they cut to, and you see, you see it's Harrison Ford, the principal. And yeah. then when they showed it to test audiences, they all went nuts because of like, you know, coming off of Indiana Jones, I mean, Raiders yeah. Lost Ark. It looks and, like Indiana Jones is teaching his class. Yeah, and it's like this, this sort of supposed to be this heavy moment. And like, you know, you're supposed to be caught up in Elliot and, and E.T.'s yeah. like struggle. And everybody was cheering stuff, so they cut it out. But I was thinking, man, if they had left that in, Harrison Ford would have been in like 11 of the 14 highest grossing films of all time. Like just throwing in another one just for fun, you know? (laughs) That makes me feel a lot better of what we left on the cutting room floor because I I felt like nothing can go. But sometimes you realize that certain things just have to go to keep the uh, the tone (laughs) or the pace together. Exactly. I just read about... I just read about a uh, Rocky Four recut that Sylvester Stallone re-edited with apparently all like I want to say almost thirty minutes of new footage. And Rocky Four is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Really excited about it. Started reading a little bit more. What I realized is the runtime of the movie is actually approximately the same, but he added about thirty new minutes and cut about thirty minutes from the original theatrical release. So I don't know if you remember, but there's a robot in Rocky IV. Oh, yeah. Seiko the robot. Apparently, Sylvester Stallone hated it. And Seiko has been completely recut. I mean, cut out of this new version. Like, which is most of the first act of the movie. And there's all these scenes where, I mean, he was supposed to be the comedy relief of the movie. And he's Polly's robot. And he occupies so much space. It's such a weird decision that in a Rocky movie, suddenly someone has like a robot butler now, (laughs) uh, which maybe Sylvester also felt, but he kind of just grew on you and you never really asked questions. At least when we were kids, when it came out, you didn't really think twice about it. And I was so excited. And now I'm like half excited because I'm going to miss out on on (laughs) the robot. This is great. That makes me think I should do a podcast where I interview animated characters or like fictitious characters because I would love to interview that robot about like, you know, how do you feel like this, you know, your legacy, this is all being rewritten. It'd be funny because he'd be like a disgruntled Hollywood, like has been chain smoking, like doing blow on the set and you know. Yeah, it's like the same beef that The Rock and Vin Diesel have. Sylvester Stallone and just a robot. (laughs) Exactly. It's like um, the, I did a a faux interview only one other time, but I did interview the Rancor you know, from Star Wars. Yeah. And he was really bitter at the time and he was smoking cigarettes, but he he had just been passed over for the Godzilla role. He thought that he like really, (laughs) you know, had that this was his chance. Yeah. Um, uh, Let's see, if we only knew some people that did animated voices, like we would be able to, wow, I don't know. They'll never knew anybody. Somebody, (laughs) anywhere. I don't know. well, you, you mentioned uh, two of the choices that uh, there's so many choices, thousands and thousands of choices in a project like this. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned two of the choices or decision points. And one was about uh, kind of taking an, um, an image from two dimensional to a three dimensional, inhabitable, recognizable kind of coherent world. Yeah. And then um, the other one was just about just uh, 
when you were talking about the writing, uh, getting a jump on that before you had to do the production stuff. And those those two things are really interesting because they, they do make animation fundamentally different in some ways. Um, on the first point with the two-dimensional and the three-dimensional, uh, not to you know throw rocks at somebody's movie, but like, you know, the Peanuts movie, I thought that, that was like a, just such a, a, a awful choice, like to, to turn that fundamentally two-dimensional, simple, simplistic, yeah. uh, jazz, simple, spare world yeah. of Charlie Brown and turn it into this like fully realized, shiny, thick, you know, kind of three-dimensional world. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, just because you could do it doesn't mean you should do it. Um, and then real quickly on the other thing on the writing uh, versus production, like one of the things I think that stands out about Pixar is that everybody talks about how emotional the films are and how satisfying they are. And, and I think how much of that do you guys think is that with animation, you have to have the script done and locked and perfect because the lead time, especially a film like that, you, you can't, you can't just fix it later. You can't just kind of, you know, figure it out as you go. And so many things in Hollywood now are done where, you know, they'll, they'll start the train rolling and then, Put the passengers on after it's already moving uh yeah as far as the story well i think the nice thing about animation is i i mean like compared to live action i feel like you do have more leeway like there's more opportunity to like it, you can basically animate something in an animatic and we can see if a scene works or doesn't right and on our end we essentially get three three opportunities to view animatics and basically say like, this scene's working, this scene's not, we need to change this, we need to adjust this. Uh, like this line, we wanna use maybe a different read for that line. Um, and so there's, a, I think it's kind of a writer's dream. There's just like an opportunity to, to perfect and tweak. And if you see something uh, from an emotional perspective, like isn't fully landing, you're like, the three of us can go huddle with our you know supervising director and just be like, all right, well, how do we make this land? Like, what do we have to do? Is it something we tweak? uh animation wise is it something we tweak in the script uh does someone's line need to change like you can really you, you, i feel like you have a lot more opportunity to uh kind of turn some knobs and, and adjust some stuff than you would in the live action where it's like you go you know other than the table read you go shoot it and you're looking at what you got and you're like well we can use that take or that take yeah uh and you know if you're fortunate enough to like uh do reshoots later maybe that's the case you know in these kind of bigger movies but like animations almost, or I'd say it's like a, a writer's dream because you get to be this like nitpicky perfectionist that I think uh, the three of us are. Yeah, the, the, hope, the hope from the production standpoint is that the scripts are pretty much there. And there are, there are points where there, you've kind of passed this point of no return to fix something, but there is that little window and there wasn't too much of it on the show, but I'd say every episode had this little margin, maybe five to 10% where yeah. to, Aaron, to what Aaron was saying, maybe one scene wasn't working or, or it was too long and need to be cut down. I, that was a big part of it was just kind of getting our, I think most of our animatics came in at about 25, 26 minutes. And our goal was always to get them to 24 or below. So we're changing it or potentially tweaking the script there, or we get to a point where like, I think especially with an ensemble show, what we realized early on was there's a lot of things that don't really go into a script, but feel important when you're trying to capture a group of kids hanging out. Hmm. Namely, 
them laughing at each other's jokes or going, oh shit, you know, like little, these little responses that breathe life into what feels like in what we wanted to get was you feeling like you were really hanging out with these kids. And those opportunities do help a lot because there were moments where you're able to add a little bit of background noise or a little bit of crowd walla that can, yeah. even though it's not in the script or, you know, if it was the scripts would be 45 pages. Um, it's, it's something that we just kind of learned on the fly and realizing, okay, before we pass this gate point, we have to make sure we get a couple of these things in um, to, to try to, 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 to really complete the episode. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. That's a, a, like an architectural detail, almost like a like an accent uh, yeah. texture. And there's so many things, there's so many things that are animators, like Titmouse, our supervising director, the directors on the episodes, even the board artists, like, there's so many things that they kind of also sprinkle in there. Like it's truly a team effort and everyone's sprinkling a little something in there. So it's like, you're, the way a scene is animated also from like, it can be a home run, it can be a strikeout. Like you can get like, you can, you can have a scene where it's on the page. It's not as emotional, but when it's animated, you're like, holy shit, this is so weighty. Like you just, you, you, and it's a credit to, you know, Angelo Hadjastavro, our supervising director who like really just like was able to, pull some of those moments out and it's like you know we were on the writing side you're like oh we meant you know like we we, we knew we we knew we kind of wanted to go that direction and like you just took it all the way it's the coolest thing in the world to see that come to life uh yeah, yeah. and as far as writing season one i mean like the the that decision was kind of given to us you know um haven't <clears throat> if we honestly if we went back in time and they were like you can write season one and then a month later we'll start making it. Maybe we would have taken it and then realized, oh shit, we're kind of in over our heads in certain points. But again, in hindsight, it, it felt like the right thing to do. It was a brand new world and a brand new show. And so there needed to be time and space for everybody to collectively decide where do the, what, who are, like, let's just keep building out these characters. Let's keep building out these worlds. There were people in the show that were not in the original pitch, Cody in the Triangle, Principal Weston, some Jules and Manda, some of our favorite characters were not in that original pitch. And so having that season one writer's room to, to find those supporting characters or find nuances to character's personality. Uh, another example is in our pitch, I think we saw Truman as much more of a kind of like Terry Richardson style, uh, artist more of like a more of like a you know yeah a little bit dirtier a little bit more like um you know crass and uh as soon as we heard and cast jabuki um he just had this kind of softness to him as well that was just so kind of you, you just had to you kind of had to go with it and it was it ended up kind of morphing truman into a much more we, we found this lane in the writer's room of him being this kind of hopeless romantic and somebody who always kind of looked through life through the lens of a movie um and was also kind of this artist yearning for perfection with his untitled shit project and a lot of those things that helped brought out the um the heart of his character was done with the time that we had in the room and had we been kind of running around doing production and stuff like that there, there could have been a path where, again, we didn't have that time and our heads were down that we would have just kind of stuck with certain decisions. So 
it was really nice to have. Um, uh, and then with the art that you that you talked about, um, yeah, we're, we we felt the same way. I mean, the, the Peanuts example is a great one. I, I'm, I see trailers for this Clifford movie also. And, um, you know, I don't want to bad mouth anyone who is a part of it because, you know, we know how much goes into making <laughs> anything right now. Teddy, and, Teddy's coming for Clifford right now. I'm Clifford, <laughs> you're on notice. No, I mean, it looks as, it looks incredible, but you also can't help but go, man, if this was a 2D movie, you know, Matt mentioned at the top of the podcast, the classic Disney movies and the other cartoons that we looked at for reference on this show or the ones that we grew up with were all 2D. They were, uh, you know, Hey Arnold and Recess and Monsters and all these classic Nickelodeon cartoons, Ren and Stimpy that were so uh, vivid and crazy. There were these moments in Ren and Stimpy where they did these disgusting close-ups of like, the surface of somebody's tongue or something yeah. or, or like the wax in their ear. And it was like almost like an impressionistic painting. Um, and that was all done 2D. And, and we feel like with this show too, there are certain jokes that honestly play better and play funnier um, in 2D. There's, there's kind of a less is more approach to the art where the realer it gets, the, well, I, I would, the closer you are. Go ahead, Aaron. I would just say that like, like Charlie Brown specifically, Peanuts, like that is something that people, generations have lived with. And yeah. it, its style is very much baked into what the show is. Uh, I mean, what the movie is or what the comic strip is. And so it's like to, to mess with that is like, uh, you know, sacrilegious. It's why are you doing that? You know, it feels reactionary as well because you know other movies are doing it and they're working. So yeah. it's like it's, we got to do this. It's like when they messed, it started playing with Sonic and started making Sonic look all funky, and then they were like, "Oh, you know what we should do is make Sonic look like Sonic," and that like <laughs> was a giant hit, and everyone was like, "Yeah, that's spot on." Uh, there's, and I think with our show, it's like, look, there was no, there's no IP here. There's nothing baked into. Uh, how this show there's no like how is this show supposed to look so it was very right. much us kind of like creating our own visual style and uh palette and colorway and how just us deciding on our end like how do we want this show to look and feel and it was very as three guys that grew up in LA it was very much like we wanted it to feel warm and represent represent like our, you know us growing up in Los Angeles and we felt like some hoodlum uh the artist that that designed the show we just felt like his color palette and style specifically very much spoke to the culture of Fairfax and Los Angeles and uh was inviting and very cool and marrying some hoodlum with Titmouse who was like we're gonna bring this show to life uh was kind of the coolest thing ever and some hoodlum was like just you know to some hoodlum's credit was like down to play ball and was like yeah let's let's do this like like the, he was enamored by the process and thought it was so cool to like really see how you animate characters and uh, understanding the world of animation in general was something that was just like so foreign, but very cool. And uh, those two guys, those two teams coming together, like really created a very unique look. And we, we went in knowing like, we don't want this show to look like every other show. We wanted to, we wanted to feel familiar. We wanted to feel warm and inviting, but we, we wanted to make sure that we weren't looking like kind of one of those like uh, 
one of those more like kind of like mainstream Fox shows maybe, or uh, like the Rick and Morty sort of yeah. opposites world. Like we really wanted to avoid kind of like uh, leaning into any of what was for the time. So I think we found a nice balance. It's interesting because it really is kind of becoming that kind of standard uh, homogenized kind of middle of the road kind of animation that people can do that do. And it's so, so beholden to the contemporary uh, view of what that is, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it kind of neuters it a little bit. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, the, uh, the, yeah. the thing with, with, uh, peanuts that you mentioned, you know, uh, when Schulz, uh, Charles Schulz started peanuts, uh, you know, the newspapers had like Prince Valiant and, and, uh, and Flash Gordon and Tarzan and yeah. Hal Foster, and they were doing all these amazingly intricate art. And he came and did like, spare panel here's a stool here's a zigzag sweater a yeah. head you know and and there weren't jokes there weren't gags it was like it was like uh, this ennui you know like uh uh-huh um so it played like you know jazz which uh it, you said you know was baked into it and that's exactly right i mean they it was almost a betrayal of, of everything that it is to to make it 3d cgi and Look, I've gone from saying I don't want to say anything bad about it to calling it a betrayal of you know. So, so. Yeah, look, I mean, you're we're, we're in the age of watching uh, every single one of our favorite comic books uh, and even the lesser comic books uh, come to life, right? Like, so it, there's there's you know some hit, some don't. Like, you have everything from like the Sin City 300 style to uh, you know, the guardians, they get these like giant Marvel movies, like eternal, like is even a different this world. <laughs> yeah. Sure. In TV and movies, it feels like the, you can kind of tell when the idea, if the idea was created and then the art was a secondary thought or whether okay. both ideas came at the same time. And when I, when I think about the, the animated movies that, I've loved recently or shows there's a thoughtfulness that you can just kind of infer from watching it and and understanding that art was thought about at the same time that the world and the characters were created I, you know uh the miles morales spider-verse was something that i have to imagine they thought about the style of that movie at the same exact time they thought about how they were going to contemporize the character and um and, and that was something that we, we tried to do as well, was thinking about, you know, again, before we even sold the show, we wanted to make sure that we had an answer to the question, what does this look like? Um, because if you don't, oftentimes the studio will just kind of tell you and, and they'll kind of usher you into a couple lanes that you can choose from that feel a little redundant, you know, and that's not a bad thing, but I think we wanted to just make sure that, that we had a style that really reflected the spirit of the show um, before somebody else put that stamp on us. That makes, that's very interesting, actually. Um, you yeah. know, what, there's also, the uh, in the United States, there's still a reluctance by um, the general audience sometimes to, and this has changed, obviously, uh, with, uh, over the years, but to view comics or animation as a fully-fledged uh, adult conversation between audience and and the art uh you know mm. it's usually viewed as being either uh for kids or you know beholden to some of the things that kids like yeah um yeah. but that you know it's interesting watching all the stuff on streaming uh the animation that's coming forward now and 
um, it's very, very exciting. Uh, and the idea that we might have rated R animation, you know, as a real ongoing concern is kind of an interesting thing too. But do you, do you guys feel like some animation uh, producers now respond to that reluctance by trying to really either sex up or, or like add purient stuff into the animation just to make sure people know it's for grownups? It's a good, ah, that's a great question. I think, and look, I think that every, they're always thinking that stuff. Uh, but like on our end, it's like, how do you do it organically? Like, how do you make it feel authentic to the show? Like, that's the most important part. Like, right. there's definitely, look, like our, even in marketing our show, there was a, there are questions about like, just, just looking at the poster. Like, let's say you don't hear anything. Just looking at the poster. Does this feel like a kid's show or an adult show? And it's something that we talked about a lot. And, uh, you know, like in a funny way, like I, I think we're kind of a hybrid. Like we grew up loving those nine, it's like the, like the golden age of like, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. And like, sure. so like it very much, the show feels like an homage to all of those shows. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like we wanted the voice to be uh, representative of the, like the voice that uh, we felt should inhabit the show and like the way kids talk today. And it's like, like, I'll tell you right now, like when I was 13, like I probably said, I probably said fuck more than I say it now because I could like, you know, there was, so there's uh, for us, I think the really, the really the important part is to just try to find a way to be as authentic as possible. Like, obviously like there's, there is a, like, there is a push from, you know, the higher ups like make sure you define yourself and i think it's like the important thing for us again was like how do we feel authentic and that involves being r-rated but being r-rated with heart and still mm -hmm. making sure we serve as that like homage to the shows that we loved and yeah. I, and just to just to add to that i think uh our hope was never to be mean like we never wanted to make a mean-spirited show you know yeah. like as much as we love and worship South Park, there's a bit of it where you're like, yeah, they're taking pot shots at so-and-so this week. And yeah. um, as funny as it is, we wanted to sort of go in a direction where you felt like you were being uh, in on the joke, you were being laughed with, not at, um, and that that kid spirit of being 13 and getting into trouble, you know, good trouble, uh, not enough trouble, not ending up in a police station, but like, you know, bruising your knees and getting scraped up and then going home to have dinner with your parents. Like that was always the fun to us was, you know, yeah. like that, like the character Benny, he talks such a big game and he curses and he acts like he knows everything. And then his mother shows up to take him to cello practice, yeah. uh, which he is obviously lying about where he's going, but there is a, a, a sweet layer under the bitterness. Um, yeah. And it feels like a warm, good spirit instead of someone that is sort of uh, to use your words like throwing rocks at you yeah that's interesting and it reminds me kind of as you're describing it the little rascals had that like where that yeah. it's on their rules and and they and they do terrible things to each other and and uh -huh. they, uh -huh. they, they feel these terrible emotions and act on their worst impulses but it all has a good heart yeah, underneath. yeah i mean peanuts yeah. is actually another interesting reference because i remember all the adults in peanuts just sound like a muted trumpet right yeah <laughs> and it, and it, and that's kind of like a little bit the case where you're kind of just invested in the kids in their own world and the adults are just they exist but they're just kind of hovering above yeah. um and uh and, and to matt's point as well like we were we hope to find that balance between being 
able to watch this show as like a 13 year old who's kind of getting into um, edgier comedy, you know, like when we were that age, we, yeah. our parents didn't want us to watch South Park, but we found it, you know, yeah. that's, that's what we hope for this show for younger kids. And then we also hope that people our age or older audiences can connect with a lot of maybe the subtler satire or the nuances or some of the older references that again, you don't need to know to enjoy the show, but if you get them, then, you know, great extra bonus points for you. Yeah. What we liked was like, you'd watch family guy when you're 12 or 13 and some of it would go over your head. You'd rewatch it stone in college and you'd get everything. And you felt like you were continuing <laughs> to discover and get jokes. And so that was our hope. Like, you watch it now in year 10, you may not get every joke, but you watch it in a few years and some new doors will open yeah, to, yeah, to you yeah. as well. I like that. That's actually really good. Um, and then, you know, music. Let's talk a little bit about uh, yeah. music and, and uh, how that fits into uh, the creative process uh, for the show and, and what, uh, tell me some of your ambitions with the music. Well, Teddy, I just want to start by saying, I think before I wrote with Teddy, so much of our friendship was based on going to the record store, going to concerts, sending each other music. Uh, I remember, you know, his apartment, his first apartment had like every single Coachella poster on the wall framed. And so when we had the opportunity to pick music, it was like heaven to us. Um, and I'll, I'll let him take it from there. But it was it was something that we knew that was incredibly important. Um, but it was just very exciting. And I know Aaron has a love of music. He's got records behind him as well. Um, it was something that we felt just like, oh my God, we get to put real music in an animated show. That felt special to us. And so we really wanted to be selective and, and we had a wonderful, um, uh, these two music supervisors, um, Jen Malone and Nicole Weisberg, who even, even in, in trying to make a show about younger people, we realized that we are kind of aged out. You know, we, we want to stay as current as possible, but <laughs> you're just not able to when you have children. Yeah. Um, and they really helped, like, to, again, to Aaron's point, authenticate the show. Yeah. Violent yeah, Femmes aren't new. You have to take the Violent Femmes out. It's like 35 <laughs> years old. Come on. That's right. <laughs> that it, it's very similar to the art conversation, honestly, is we really wanted the show to, in the same way we wanted it to look new and fresh and feel like L.A., we wanted the music to reflect what these kids were listening to. And there's definitely some fun throwbacks in there that, are referential, like I swear, or, yeah. you know, uh, shallow, <clears throat> but yeah. for the most part, the music that we picked for the show is all music that we felt like the gang gang would listen to on their phones as they're heading to the block. And music in an animated show is not common. It, usually animated shows yeah. have score and that's pretty much it. Um, but we wanted, we wanted music to, to be just as important as the writing or the visuals of the show because that, that was kind of the, the tent that we wanted to set up. And so we had a music budget that uh, is probably more than most animated shows get. Um, you know, getting This Is America in the pilot was like this giant swing that we were so excited to take. Same thing with, with Lady Gaga. And, and we wrote letters to... to Gambino, we wrote letters to Lady Gaga being like, we, we love you. We love this song. We would love to use it in the show. And our music supervisors did an amazing job helping us discover music that we hadn't heard yet. Um, but it was an awesome process and uh, 
we're so happy with the music in the show because we really feel like there are certain sequences, whether they're a soundtrack moment, like the gang swinging over the spike pit or like original music, like the Shania Twain song. Um, you know, we wanted to put that thumbprint into the show in a really fun way. Yeah. Our music supervisors had the hardest job in the world of being like, okay, so this song's going to be hot in like two years. Oh. Right. <laughs> Right. Because it it's basically a two year lead time. Right. So like, right. It really it, credit to them. They're uh, they a few misses that barbershop quartet. You know, I mean, OK, yeah. that one... they're like, that's a little stale. No, uh, no. They, and the music, like, again, baked into the DNA of the show. It's such an important part of it. And uh, our music and the other side of that coin, the music supervisor coin is is our composer, Joe Shirley. And that was yeah. That was a really tough task to find a composer for this show because a lot of, we're right on that border between contemporary hip hop and a lot of kind of classical animation score. And a lot of composers can do one of those things really well, but not both. Um, we met with composers who were just incredible and, and knocked it out of the park in certain sequences, but we also felt like there were beats that we needed to make, like the main credits, the opening and end credits to the show were made by our composer. And those are hip hop beats that somebody could rap on, you know? And so finding Joe was, was truly this, this shooting star that we were able to capture. Um, and, and that was also through our music supervisors who introduced us to him. But um, it was awesome because he was able to make beats when we needed beats, but when we, when we were doing an Indiana Jones homage, that you could, that he was able to hit those homages and, and give you a kind of John Williams take um, in those moments we needed them as well. Yeah. yeah, I think like for better or worse, we tend to think like very cinematically. And so we would just put like, every episode we'd be like, hey Joe, we are so sorry, but this is like, you are taking on 42 different emotions in the exact same <laughs> There's a lot of things in the show that aren't typical of an animated show. And it's why we're so proud of this one because yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of animated shows don't have the background details or the prop details that we have, but this is a show about sneaker culture. We needed the shoes to look real. Um, that's design work that most animated shows aren't used to. They design characters and backgrounds and that's, a few of them. And we had so many characters. I think our line producer or our overseas studio told us at one point that we had, there are 1500 characters in the first season of Fairfax. Wow. Um, you know, extra, you know, every incidental. Um, and that number is just, I think, insane. Um, if anyone in animation heard that number, they would go, oh my God. Um, same thing with the music. There's so much of that, that um, most animated shows aren't used to doing, and I think we probably made everybody's hair a little bit grayer, including our own, um, but we really felt like it was worth it. You know, one of the things that makes me um, plunge, take the plunge and watch a show, uh, if it's animated, if I don't know anything about it, uh, is the guest stars. And you guys have some great guest stars. Uh, and uh, if there, I can't imagine anybody's on the fence listening to this. I'm sure they're already uh, wondering, should I keep listening or should I go watch it now? You know. <laughs> they'll, they'll figure that out, but um, in case well, there are answer for you right after this break. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about some of the guest stars that you guys have. Um, uh, I mean, like, how do you not start with Billy Porter? 
That yeah. was the craziest thing of all time. Like when we wrote when we wrote the script, we wrote in Think Billy Porter. Truly. And you know, you write that we write that literally to be like think Billy Porter, but like really cast whoever you can cast. Yeah. And uh Linda LaMontagne, our casting director, just went out to Billy Porter and Billy read it and responded to the material and was in. And it was like like holy crap, we're working with Billy Porter. This is so wild. Awesome. It was really the craziest thing in the world. And then, mind you, we're recording during COVID, so we have to send these booths to their home, and they have to spend an hour setting, building their own booth in their home to record. And we're sitting on there in a Zoom, just watching Billy build a booth. And we are like, we are so sorry, Billy. Please do not quit the show before you start. The day like, he got nominated for an Emmy was the day with the tent the, the like dome tent showed up and he said it was a very humbling experience yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, uh, it's like an escape room in reverse it's yeah. like yeah and he was, he was so into it i mean when we first met with him and was recording with him he told us that he in his career never really got offered these kinds of roles in animation you know it was always like the comedic relief parrot on the shoulder of the of the main character you know it's it's always those secondary roles and he you know finally got to play this this awesome villainous kind of larger than life character and, and had so much fun doing it and just blew us away and not to mention and this is a slight spoiler but gets to seeing in episode eight and we were like we can't work with billy porter and not sing a little bit like he's yeah, just you gotta got hear his voice, voice He's got the best voice in the world. And he, and he graciously uh, sang these amazing Willy Wonka spoofs uh, for us. And I mean, we can go on down the list. Uh, Rob Delaney and Yvette as Dale's parents, Grant and Trini are both just so fantastic. And their voices just sound so buttery together. It just, they really like, they, they all sounded, when you hear, when you record, with actors, everybody's in their own booth and then you edit it all together. So you don't, aside from the table reads, you don't totally know how the chemistry is gonna work. And we got to hear those scenes for the first time in the radio play and you hear Rob and Yvette and Skylar who plays Dale, their voices together in the scene just felt so perfect. They really sounded like a family. Um, they were just so funny. Yeah. We also uh, have Col Colton Dunn plays Principal Weston and Colton was like, one of those guys where you you know you're scrolling through auditions and you play his audition, and he started riffing and we just listening to it. We were like, okay, so that's going in the script and that's going <laughs> in the script. Like he was just delivering heat and it was so funny. And that it, it's one of those things where you hear a voice and you're like, you can't go back. Like that is Principal Weston, oh, and, and Colton's also such an incredible. He's like a trained voice actor. Like he it's so easy because a lot of these times you have to place these actors in different roles they have to play more than one and so colton it was like great you're doing this you're doing that and and you're weston and it's yeah like, he was the narrator uh the the kind of documentary narrator voice in episode six and the principal um uh, we have to mention john leguizamo and jb smooth as glenn and quattro uh, yeah. who yeah. you know those characters were to us, our homage to Stadler and Waldorf, we just thought it would be so perfect to have kind of a generational commentary on how the block has evolved because it really has changed a lot. Um, if, yeah. you, if, you, if you know the block's history a little bit and who better? I mean, truly it, it, we have so many hours of unused audio of 
John and JB improving that we were like, we need a spinoff show because there's so much good here. And we only have these really short windows where we would use them to kind of break story a little bit or, or smash to credits. And they were just so funny. And, and John and JB were just, again, they were so awesome to work with and hilarious. Yeah. Um, Pamela Adlon, I mean, we, we, we tell people this in a, in a lot of other, you know, when we, when we talk about it, but a lot of this casting was us just checking off our bucket list of people that we truly admire and have been, would dream about working with before this process started. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pamela Adlon, who is an animation, animation royalty as far as we're concerned. Um, it was also Zoe, Zoe Deutsch, yeah. Tammy Mendez, Ben Schwartz. Like we were, as we were like building out these characters, it was really just like, again, going out to like, who's the, the number one person all of these, for all these roles said yes. And it was so shocking to us. Cause we were like, why did, you know. You want to work with us? We're <laughs> humble little Fairfax show that uh, no one's ever heard of. Yep. And, and then there were the, the kind of like bizarre choice, not, it just unexpected, I guess, is the word, where we thought there was just something really funny about casting someone unexpected for a role. I think we felt like a lot of animated shows go to the same well for casting. Mm -hmm. um, and we just thought it would be really awesome and unexpected to have David Strathairn uh, play the the head of the Welch's operation in our kind of Truman Show-esque spoof in Chernobyl Fest. And, and he was down. Um, Strathern was in the middle of shooting Nomadland. He straight right. up was like in Montana somewhere and was like, yes, I want to do that voice. And it would go between Nomadland shooting, it. he would just come and record with us. Uh, and Elliot Gould as Uncle Mendy yeah. uh, was somebody that, again, Henry Winkler and Garrett Morris, all three of those guys just were so good and they were so funny. My God, yeah. And Henry Winkler played so against type in the best way. I won't, yeah. I won't spoil his character, but- um, He's like the nicest guy in the world. It's oh he's the God. nicest guy in the world and he plays the raunchiest guy in the world, yeah. Yeah, Teddy, that reminded me of a fun story, Jeff. Uh, after we cast Henry Winkler and had the table read, our casting director was like, Henry Winkler would like to speak with you. And the three of us were like, hey. oh, no. like oh no. Like, <laughs> he doesn't like the material, he's out. And we got on a Zoom with him and he was like, guys, I just wanted to know, like, what did you think of my performance? How was I? Did I improv too much? And we were like, you can do no wrong. Like, you were <laughs> yeah. incredible. Like, yeah, guys, guys, you know, he's so, he's so, yeah, like, it is, it's a like, testament to him that he's been working in this industry for over 50 years and is still asking for notes, you know, looking to be better and, and is such yeah. a just, <clears throat> it really defines the word professional. So, Ron so Howard tells story yeah. about him, how what he did to launch Ron's career, and it's just it's it's just such a lovely guy. I mean, he took the role in Night Shift. Yeah. When they cast Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton said, "No, I wanted that role." So they had to go. Uh, Ron had to go back to Henry and say, "Henry, I know you agreed to be in this so that they would let me direct a movie, but now do you mind being in it and taking <laughs> the second role?" And so really? I gave it to this unknown guy, Michael Keaton, and and Henry's like. Of course, Ron. What, what, of course, it'll be great. Let's do it. And it doesn't surprise us at all. The national treasure. Yeah. yeah. Matt, tell the Robbie story. With which one? With Henry. Oh, right, right. Um, uh, Henry had trouble setting up his like Zoom along with the like dome tent that come that came to his house, 
And Robbie, our line producer, God bless him, drove to his house. Uh, it was a Jewish holiday. And Henry like invited him to stay for dinner. Uh, and, and you would like hear these, these tidbits of stories about these people during COVID. And, and we it, like, it just like melted our heart because we were sitting here going like, we are so incredibly lucky to work with these people. And then to engage with them, like on a personal level, well, they're inviting us into their homes, inviting yeah. us in, you know, into their homes through the computer. Uh, it, it really warmed our heart. And I think during COVID, uh, in a time of, of civil unrest in the country for those hours, you know, an hour that we would get to get on with Janine Garofalo and tell her like, oh my God, Janine, you have no idea what you mean to us. Like literally we've been watching you. We've grown up with you. Like she'd be like, shut up. You don't care. Like whatever this is, you know, and yeah. if there's something endearing and charming, like I, I don't know if everybody, you know, you're supposed to play it cool. You know, when you meet Paul McCartney, you're not supposed to be like, oh, fucking Beatles. You know, it's like that Chris Farley SNL skit. And to me at least, was like, yeah, we can't how, hold how, back. We cannot many, hold back. How many opportunities are you going to get to say, like, yeah. you have no idea how you have influenced my my comedic voice and what I want to do and who I want to be? And it, it, like the three of us were like texting each other after, like, oh my, you know, like we still don't believe this happened. We do, but it, it, we still pinch ourselves. I think. And, yeah. Wow. And, and Winkler's, he's like one of those people. Like, I mean, he was a pop culture phenomenon in like the seventies. I mean, like, so you see him and you're like, it's fucking Fonzie. Like, you know, it's just yeah. it's. It's like next level. It's like interviewing. I, I had to interview Clint Eastwood a few times, and and that's what I think it's the people that you that were famous when you were a little kid. Yeah, that were already famous, and they like my dad would freak out sitting next to Clint Eastwood. Right. So like that makes it like me plus my dad. I'm standing on his shoulders. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, you know? That sounds frightening. That sounds like the scariest <laughs> thing of all time to interview Clint Eastwood. Get off my you, zoom. you know what? I could. Yeah. He, he tried to land a helicopter on me. No. What? Oh yeah, yeah. No, he he did. He absolutely did. He absolutely did, and laughed about it. And because uh, he liked me, he liked there me. It was the fourth time I interviewed him, and I was they they said, "Do you want to interview him in L.A. or in Carmel?" I'm like, "Duh." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go to Carmel. Oh, no. what do you mean? Uh, so, and uh, I'm up there at his place, that resort he owns. You know, it's uh, the uh, is there and stuff. And uh, there's this like kind of uh, sea cliff. Uh, gray skies and choppy ocean water and and uh, I'm just taking it all in and he's like a little late which I think is kind of weird because he's never late and the place yeah. deserted and I see a helicopter and I'm looking oh look at that helicopter wow it looks like it's coming this way huh wow it uh what what <laughs> like I'm like okay. <laughs> walking jog walking running and and stuff is flying everywhere the helicopter lands like the rotors right where my face was and uh that's amazing. What and a power move. One person gets out. There's only one occupant. No. Clemson uh, <laughs> gets out and goes, sorry, I'm late. I got hung up over Shasta. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm just a mere mortal. Uh, how you doing? Uh, welcome. Yeah. yeah. That's oh, you, my God. You'll like this. You know what? I, so I had, like I said, it was the fourth time I interviewed him. And I had uh, an uh, hour uh, with him. Yeah, now, he's been famous since what, like 65, 65, yeah, yeah, yeah. 66, you know, with uh, Rawhide and stuff. Yeah. Um, he's been interviewed thousands of times, right? Um, so what am I going to do that's different? Um, at 50 minutes, five zero minutes, Yeah. I reach, reach over, I turn off the tape recorder, I close my notebook, because usually people go an hour, yeah, yeah, yeah. comes in, they point their watch, and then they yeah. do the wrap it up, and uh -huh. then they cut the neck, and then they come in, they just turn off the tape recorder, and you know, it's like clawing out every minute. 
I turned the tape recorder off 10 minutes early. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, I got it. You finish wow. movies ahead of, uh, without, uh, under budget. Uh, you shoot rehearsals. You know when you got it. I got it. I'm not going to waste yeah. your time. And he's like, all right. All right. And he like started cheering. You hit Clint Eastwood's sweet spot. That is somebody who does not want to do anything longer than he needs to. Yeah. He loved it. And he's, he shoved his hands in his members only jacket. And the publicist <laughs> came in. She's purple. Like, what happened? What happened? And he goes, he's got it. And uh, we walk out and someone took a picture right then of the two of us. Oh. It's like one of my prized possessions. Wow. Because he looks so happy. There, uh, that's, there's, did he get I've, I've heard Matt Damon tell stories. Like, I forgot where I heard it, but he was saying that like, Clint does like two takes and he's like, we're good. Like, we don't need anymore. He's like, let's move on. That was no, like, let's run yeah. this back. Like, I want to try another shake. And he's like, no, 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 you got it. Like, let's keep and going. He shoots rehearsals and doesn't tell people and uses it. Amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Man, but I'll tell you, people sure as fuck show up for rehearsal. Like, yeah. <laughs> you it, know, they it, take rehearsals. You are noticed as an actor. You're like, oh shit, I gotta, I gotta bring it and take one. Most actors kind of work themselves into their third take, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it puts you in an interesting kind of hot seat. You know what, what uh, the payoff of that, uh, the, the 10 minutes uh, that I cut the interview short, um, as we're walking out, he goes, are you heading back to LA? And I said, well, I haven't decided yet, you know, like, cause it was a uh, midday. And he's like, yeah. well, if you stick around, let's have dinner. I'm like, uh, like in the wow. same place, like with each other, like, <laughs> like the same food and oh yeah, I could do that. Uh, I'll stick around. And so like seven o'clock, sure enough, there he is uh, at the, the restaurant he owns. And um, we sit down and he's got a stack of foil chocolate, foil wrapped dark chocolate. There's like little bricks, you know, yeah, uh, there's yeah. like six of them and he stacks them in front of him and he has a glass of red wine. I'm on my fourth martini because I'm so fucking nervous and like I'm yeah, a lot of, and I'm waiting <laughs> to order food. We sat there for three hours, three hours, never ordered food. He ate every one of those six things, never offered me one, never even like, <laughs> acknowledged that there, there was no food. And, and, and then I could tell he was going to leave, right? And you know how you want things to keep going? Yeah. yeah. And this was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, I mean, we talked about helicopters. I don't know shit about helicopters. We yeah, talked about yeah, golf. Yeah. I don't even golf. It's great. It's awesome. Um, and I wanted to keep going. And I had seen these little sheep running around the property at the beginning of the day when I was up on about to get killed by the helicopter. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, so th at the end of this meal, I meal, his meal, um, I say, Oh, um, so I'd love to, I love, I love what you've done with the sheep. And he goes, what? And I go, the sheep, the little, I don't know. I like the sheep. I think they're really cool. And he goes, <laughs> and, and I'm like, I've, I've ruined it. I've ruined everything. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He looks at me, he goes, you know, I delivered every one of those sheep. No. And I laughed and, and he goes, I'm serious. And then I'm like, I know, oh yes. I, of course. Well, and then yeah. I feel bad now. I've, I've like I've, I've mocked his 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 midwifery. And I say, um, did did you name them? And it's at this point that Clint Eastwood teaches me the difference between uh heartfelt and sentimental. because mm. uh, heartfelt is you give him is uh, sentimental is you give him a name. Yeah. Um he goes, yeah, I named them. Fucking sheep. <laughs> fucking sheep, fucking sheep, fucking sheep. That's the difference. Like, that's heartfelt as you deliver a sheep. Sentimental yeah. is if you bother to name it. Wow. That's amazing. The legend just gets bigger. It's like truly, 
of course Clint Eastwood delivers his sheep. Like, why would he not? You know? Yeah, like, he probably did it while he was at the table eating the chocolate, and I didn't even notice. Yeah. That's also a Buckwild dinner choice. Just chocolate. That's why yeah. he lives for so long. It's just this, chocolate and wine. No, it's true. This might just be, yeah. like, the, like, Jewish mother in me, but I'm still concerned about whether or not you ate. <laughs> I'm still at the table. I'm still waiting for my food. No, yeah. I never ate. Why? Worth it. Still worth yeah, he it. said, when you play Dirty Harry, then you get a dark chocolate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, you ever been in Pink Cadillac? You know what Firefox is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, asked was him, um, for, I was waiting for you to be like, and then we ate a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That was the end of it. But uh, I did ask him, like, uh, if he was... Uh, making if he's getting started today how he would deal with all the superhero stuff i said you know they want you to be a superhero and he's like, i don't know about that stuff you know and, and he told me about uh when he was offered superman in uh, oh, wow. 78 um and he's like that was a bad idea <laughs> he's yeah. like i look ridiculous and i'm like yeah it's true That's yeah it's hard to imagine clint eastwood wearing tights but it's interesting that he gave that answer because from what i hear a lot of those westerns and studio movies in the golden era were basically Marvel movies. Yeah. You know, yeah. Actors, actors essentially belonged to a studio and they got placed in big budget, you know, big budget movies. Yeah, the hats were cooler and, and uh, yeah, the hats were a lot of tights, cool. you know, like that's true. I think it's the he still sees it as superhero like tights, you know, he thinks of the George Reeves, right, uh, right, right. George Reeves uh, era and all the typecasting and stuff. But I asked him also his favorite comic book character was, and he had one. Uh, which I was, I was surprised. And when he said it, I was shocked. Uh, is Namor, the Submariner. No way. Like, talk about, that yeah. guy's like dangerous. He's like, he, he was killing people. Like the first, first Namor story, he's like killing people left and right. You know? Yeah. He's you like gotta, did, he ex- did he tell you how he landed on that? No, no, he did. We, it was kind of, the, I could tell I was losing his interest on, on that whole topic. Yeah. So, yeah. but it, interestingly, it's the same answer that Johnny Depp gave me uh, like a year later. Wow. Yeah, his, his favorites were Namor and Sergeant Rock. So, whoa. Interesting. That's really. I didn't realize Namor was such a crowd favorite among like industry legends. I, I can't imagine how. Like, I mean, especially for Johnny, because like I don't know what he was reading that there wasn't that many Namor stories around really. He you know, read the read. Clint Eastwood interview and was like, I'm copying that. Interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I look good with those little wings on my feet. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. uh, why is a guy living in the ocean have white, little white wings? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Namor, whose name is Roman spelled backwards, which I never noticed. Oh, I would never put that together. Yeah, that's he wanted a name that sounded sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, not aristocratic, but elevated. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that those two guys would pick an anti-hero. Yeah, you're right. Especially Johnny. Especially yeah. and the Sergeant Rock comics were really heartfelt. Like the, those were like they were like Alan Alda uh, war yeah. comics. You know, like I mean, there were, a lot of people get shot, but a lot of like major social messaging and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, um, I could see Clint Eastwood playing the Punisher in another, you know, in another timeline. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Well, he sure. kind of did, you know. Yeah, I can see him playing. Um, I was trying to think of something funny, and I can't think of a single thing. So Mighty Mouse. That would Power be the duck, yeah. Unexpected. That's that unexpected. would be an unexpected choice. Um, it's his final role. His final role. How about Tyrock, though? The, do you guys know that guy? Who is it? Tyrock. Remember that DC character? No, too far. Too oh. deep. Never mind. 
That is a deep pull. He's based on James Brown, and he he dresses like James Brown. Yeah, that'd be the best. Batman, there's Batman, and then everybody. (laughs) Exactly. Clint Eastwood, Batman, everybody. That's true. Yeah, he, I'm, he was, a, he's a Batman's the easiest shoeing of all time. He has the voice for it. That's true. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, and the, the mouth yeah, area. Yeah, like the lantern job, Bruce Wayne. Yeah. By the way, right. Teddy, Teddy, do you remember when we saw Clint Eastwood at the after party at Coachella in like 2014, where he was walking around the Neon Carnival and he had his like two seater SL. He was chaperoning his children, but it's like a bunch of you know, teenagers on ecstasy and Clint Eastwood. Uh, <laughs> was an incredible, an incredible sight. That's true. During, during the middle of a sandstorm. Yeah. That guy's amazing. That's, that's so much fun. And we should, we'll have you guys back just to talk Coachella. I went to the first eight um, mm. um, and I was the, the reporter for the LA Times for those. So Were you uh, there? Jeff, tell me you were there the night Daft Punk played in the tent. Yeah, sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. We interviewed, I, uh, we did a photo shoot with them on the beach in Huntington in the sand uh, in full robot regalia to, for the cover uh, to make it look like the desert. We didn't show the ocean, just the sand. That's uh, so awesome. But uh, I went out to Coachella. I went out to the Empire Polo Fields with Paul Tillette, the guy that started Coachella. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. about three months before they announced the show because he let us announce it. And we were walking around and he's like, it's going to be here. And he had this whole vision and, and he was walking and he's just stepped in this like big pile of horse shit. <laughs> and uh, he, he looks down and he looks at me. He's like, that's going to go in the story, isn't it? I go, yeah, yeah, it's going to <laughs> <in> the story. <laughs> so uh, we, we still talk about it. We kept in touch. Uh, he had a, um, he did a country festival on the same site, you know. Yeah, stagecoach. Stage yeah. And he called and tell me about that. And he goes, I got this new country festival. We're going to make money because we leave everything up. Um, and he told me the name, and the name was Haywire. You're like, dude, you can't call it Haywire. It sounds like a rave. Yeah, yeah. Like, you might get Oklahoma people out there. That's and uh, like, you should call it Stagecoach. And he goes, you named it that on the phone, dude. Wow. And he exactly. goes, you know, I would have paid, I would have paid twenty thousand dollars for that. And I go, yeah, bag of cash, mail it. Yeah, send it over. <laughs> you get artist pass for life, Jeff. Oh, I had a golf cart every year. Out, out there, like there I was the only go. person covering it that had a golf cart, which is that's worth great. that's worth twenty thousand dollars. That's incredible. <laughs> that's like better than any. That's like that's like a god pass. That's not even like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, artist yeah, yeah. pass. God pass. You know, Paul had a god pass. You know, he, he and his brother, um, and there was only those two, and it was two. They don't use them anymore, so I can tell you, but it was two handguns, like revolvers, like crossing. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, no matter how loud the music was, no matter what's going on anywhere, if he showed that to anybody, they would have to do what he told. You know, like, uh, like that's the like. If he says, if you see this pass, if he says, I'm going on there and I'm taking the microphone, I'm going to punch Morrissey in the face, I'm going to jump off stage. You let him do it because that's what needs to be done. But I asked him, why two guns? He goes, because I'm a big shot. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is amazing. And I wish we heard this story before Chernobyl Fest because we would have added a god pass that Dale was able to get. Yeah. yeah, there's time. There's time in the future. There's there's, there's, there's gonna be another. There's, there's always more. more. Well, I can't tell you what a treat is is to have you guys on the show. Uh, and uh, and just best of luck with Fairfax. And, and uh, um, when can we, we do another crossover? Let let's get uh, Anytime. let's get you guys back. 
we're available, Jeff. If you want to do a weekly or start a new podcast with the three of us, we are available uh, any time. This was so much yeah. fun. We've never been more available than we are right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's terrific. Well, it's a great show. And uh, for all our listeners, if you haven't checked out Fairfax on Amazon Prime, this is the time to do it. Uh, and uh, check out that whale episode uh, and the Chernobyl episode. Those are just great ones. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was a pleasure hanging with you. Yeah, it was all right, awesome. guys. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for tuning in on Mindspace. You just took a trip with us to Fairfax. The wonderful new world that's streaming on Amazon Prime. It's an eight episode series that you can stream right now. We both enjoyed it. And on Amazon, you can also, if you like the this the material culture of the show, you know, it's full of bright colors, you know, brand logos and this whimsical aesthetic. They also have uh, a collection of merch you can get with the Fairfax you know, blunt smoking pigeons. Uh, it's on Amazon and they also do a collection with Staple. Um, there's a hoodie and a t-shirt and that's at staplepigeon.com. You know, those pigeons <laughs> remind me of, they, did you hear about this terrible thing in Vegas where people were stapling hats on 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 pigeons? Oh my God, no. Flying around, they had like little cowboy hats on and people thought it was hysterical, but also like really deeply upsetting. Um, that is deeply upsetting. It's the strangest thing. And as far as I know, that they didn't find any great harm was done to the, the animals other than they were forced to uh, be part of somebody's visual gag, visual joke. But uh, I can't even stand it when I see a pigeon with like, you know, two toes. That breaks my heart. So I can't imagine. A cowboy hat. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I'm sure it's not good for them. I can't, it probably affects their vision and stuff like that. But uh, and it's kind of a, awful of, uh, association but that's the first thing i thought when i saw those pigeons for some reason mm-hmm. but um the show reminds me uh you know it's one of the the uh the great benefits of the streaming era that we live in is that uh you know when, when you have network and even basic cable uh traditionally uh the way that you if you were in a creative team is you would look for the you know the, the most common denominator uh you know, to please the widest audience. And uh, now with the streaming era that we live in and the long tail of things, people can be a little more niche. And like, this is a show that it would have been very hard for the show to get made, you know, um, uh, under the old model. And so we're seeing a lot of really cool and interesting animation pop up. And I think we're gonna see more and more of it, um, more and more sort of rated R animation as well. Mm, Um, Yeah. Because I think traditionally uh, in the States, uh, there's still the, uh, the prevailing thought is that animation is for children. And Pixar's pushed that back, you know, and, and, and has, has, has Laka, Laka, uh, Laka, excuse me, and, uh, and others. But, uh, you know, I still, I think people's kind of default is that they think of animation and, and sequential comics storytelling as, as a kid's first genre uh although uh it used to be the hollywood's challenge was could they get adults to go see comic book movies and now it's like the mm. movies like deadpool 2 and, and things like that the challenge is can kids get in to see comic book movies <laughs> rated r uh, my grandma loves like it's such an amazing thing to see 
in, and I don't mean that in a, in a disparaging way, like, oh, my grandma loves Deadpool and my grandma loves Suicide Squad. She loves it. And I think that's such an achievement, like, you know, that my grandma, who's, you know, half of her movie consumption is like just movies, wholesome movies about dogs, that she is also into this uh, rated R comic book, irreverent um, zeitgeist is that, and that she feels included in it is pretty tremendous. That's great. And there's so many sort of subversive things right now yeah. like within animation and, and comic books, storytelling adaptations, you know, like the boys and, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, on uh, Doom Patrol and all, the, all that on TV and, and, uh, and so many mental health things, you know, like Doom Patrol has mental health themes, like strong, like core mental health themes in the show. And, and uh, you know, Moon Knight has got that mm -hmm. coming up for Marvel as well. Um, I'm fascinated by that character in the comics because he's he's the the only character I know in the Marvel universe, the only superhero of note that has multiple secret identities. He has like three, mm -hmm. but then he also has this personality disorder. So, and he doesn't know if his disorder is driven by his connection to ancient Egyptian god, mm -hmm. or if it's driven by his encroaching madness that's taking over his mind. And none of the other superheroes trust him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but isn't that interesting? Um, but Fairfax, you know, it, it, you know, animation about families and about uh, groups of friends and and, um, and interpersonal stuff, uh, you know, goes back to Flint, uh, you know, Flintstones and Jetsons and prime time in the '60s, and you know, obviously the Simpsons, which is you know the, the mega heavyweight success in the field, but also Family Guy, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, PJs and you know different things like that through the years but um, this one's really fun and it's great uh, it also uh, adds to the tradition of uh, tv shows or films named after streets in Los Angeles so mm -hmm. <laughs> we have Melrose Place we have Sunset Boulevard and now we have Fairfax I'm sure there's a, probably a Sepulveda somewhere how how true to life did you find it as someone from LA well other than the pigeons and, uh, yeah and by true to life i should specify not like actual verisimilitude yeah. like you know how how in tune with the the feel the the emotions the affect of the place yeah did you find it yeah I, th I felt like it 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 resonated with uh with me and it it had the uh the familiar it had the familiar echo of local textures you know mm -hmm. so to speak to mix metaphors but uh yeah i thought it was a lot of fun and uh, uh i'm interested in the characters and i guess that's the that's the biggest challenge with um any series but especially i think an animated series is is are you connected to the characters because it's one thing to have gags and and and, and a show that's funny with its animation and its situations, but the hard thing is to build a connection, I think, mm -hmm. to an audience. That that's the real challenge. And that's like the greatest success of the Simpsons. You know, the amount of, you know, people love Homer Simpson, people love Marge Simpson and, and Bart Simpson and Lisa Simpson. They just really do. And, and that's because each of them is is a uh, a singular uh, distinct, you know, uh, entity in their mind, you know, like so that's a great success by all involved. And and I think Fairfax has a chance to uh you know find their own success uh with 
characters that they're they're drawing. Mm -hmm. are, are, were there any characters in specific from Fairfax that you found yourself rooting for or identifying with or just immersing yourself in their um, their emotions? In, in in addition to Fairfax, just other shows and characters from other animations that you've gravitated towards over the this year? Well, the, the, the animation stuff, um, you know, some of the most interesting animation stuff has been an anthology kind of approach, mm -hmm. you know, like um, um, uh, I name just fell out of my head. We're going to have to plug it in. Uh, what is it? So, robots? Sex Love, death, and robots. robots. Is it just death and robots? Love, death, and robots. Love, death. I was going to say sex, death, and robots. Well, yeah, we at Heavy Metal are very familiar with Love, Death, and Robots, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what happened. For, we won't talk about what happened. Yeah. All right. So I'll start that sentence over. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's in a lot of the animation today. Some of the most interesting animation is in anthology things like Love, Love Death, and Robots, for instance, which is like the Black Mirror of animation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I mean, I, I love the classic characters like on The Simpsons, as I mentioned, and, and Family Guy. Um, but I think with Fairfax, the thing that appeals to me most is just this sort of, it's nice that it has a geographic name because mm -hmm. that's how it's appealing to me is it just seems like it's about a place and about these kids. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you, you mentioned the 80s movies. I hadn't thought of that, but that's actually a really good connection. It's like, you know, if, uh, if the Goonies were on their way to a pop-up shop, um, mm -hmm. you know, and also had cell phones and were immersed mm -hmm. in 21st century life, they might... Uh, no, they wouldn't be anything like these kids would be. It'd be totally different. But, um, but I think the uh, the group dynamic is really interesting. And it kind of reminds me of a, that, you know, I don't know if you know the TV series, Dave. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of some of the some of the situations and uh, the palette kind of reminds me of that occasionally, although it's mm -hmm. you know, very, very different. But uh, so they seem to, they would run in some of the same uh, traffic jams. Yeah. Yeah, I really like there's a character on Fairfax. She's like their school's influencer, that girl. And she oh, seems yeah. like some sort of hybrid of like Ariana Grande and the popular girl in every teen movie. But there's a yeah. line where she has her birthday party, which is sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> and she says something like, um, thanks for all my best friends who come along with my friends from Nabisco <laughs> and it was so searingly accurate to awesome. so many moments I've had in college and encountering you know people who make their living as influencers that uh I loved it That's you know amazing. can't relate like sadly but it was just cutting <laughs> That's great. I love that, you know, and Nabisco is just a funny word. You know, like yeah. that's, that's like 35% funnier than Kodak, you know, it's like it's, it's just a funny word, Nabisco. Yeah, I, like I mean, you see lots of, I've been from the Midwest, so you see their logo on lots of things. And it's really funny because it's like this upside down weird cross symbol that looks satanic, <laughs> which is totally at odds with like what Nabisco is, which is just the most kind of boring uh mega you know uh yeah. agricultural industrial complex you know thing uh -huh. that could exist and like you'll drive past this factory farm and it's like this ornate like cryptic eldritch lovecraftian symbol <laughs> yeah yeah it i think it, it kind of looks like if it, 
you put a, a TV antenna on top of a yeah uh, a, a beach ball and squished it inside of a pyramid. Uh, yeah, it's, it's some but, sort of uh, symbol that like some sort of cannibalistic order of medieval knights like worshipped under under the cover of dark but it's also just crackers yeah and well hey what's more crackers than that <laughs> that's correct yeah i also love the the welch's cameo in episode five i just it's so accurate to the way that you know life is becoming increasingly dominated by these corporations even if they do have a kind of fumbling hello there kids uh incompetence to their social maneuvers <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's not endearing clumsiness it's just uh it's yeah. just disinterested clumsiness yeah um, i thought the welch's one pretty endearing like that was the most successful one to me because they they actually showed you these these ambitious buffoons behind the social media marketing campaign and you actually kind of rooted for them they they yeah. had their their passions and they were passionate about it and <laughs> they were crestfallen when they failed yeah you yeah. were invested in it you were invested yeah. in it it's pretty yeah great. that's definitely the episode i resonated with the most for audiences if you watch an episode of fairfax i recommend episode five chernobyl fest <laughs> nice what yeah, episode I, did you like oh i like the one um i mentioned to them even i think the la river one just because mm -hmm. it's got, it felt like it's had uh, some connections to the household as you know i'm, I'm engaged uh uh and my fiance serena i mentioned during the, the interview and she's uh um has been real active in the la river cause and uh so uh it was it was it was fun and, and I think a little jarring for her to see a uh, a whale dropped into the LA River and, and then rescued. I think it it'll it it's uh it evoked a lot of unexpected emotions as any sort of animated odyssey about a whale in the LA River would. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's the one I liked just because it's uh I mean I can see the LA River from where I'm sitting. So yeah, what do you uh, see? uh well it's the mighty los angeles river i mean it's yes. you know it's uh it's breathtaking uh and that's just the small no just joking it's uh, <laughs> uh it's uh it's a fascinating thing and for people that uh don't know much about it you know most people's impression of the la river it's like what arnold schwarzenegger is and uh uh Ed Furlong are, are riding through on the motorcycle in Terminator 2, that big concrete mm -hmm. basin expanse that's pretty much bone dry most of the time. Um, but uh, there are parts of the LA River uh, in the urban area here that uh, you know have been uh, reclaimed for uh, nature reserves and and uh, urban agricultural projects and mm -hmm. different. Uh, different things and a lot of activities for riding bikes and hiking and things like that so yeah in uh, the show they had the like the kayaking class you know where you could yeah. have a like a scenic uh reprieve from the city life yeah exactly so it's like um at its best it's like an oasis uh in a concrete jungle or a concrete sort of desert jungle and then um but at its worst it's it's a distressing reminder of you know um how unlikely it is to have a metropolis sitting here in this 
desert by the sea, Mediterranean climate that's boxed in by these mountains and mm. brings its water in 400 miles from Colorado. It's, you know, the, the entire existence of this megaopolis is, is, uh, is a head scratcher as far as mother nature is concerned. Yeah. I mean, I feel you coming from Chicago. I mean, we had a river, we just had to reverse it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I, well, it's, no, but it's I love the contradictions you mentioned. Like you described it as a concrete desert, and I'm like, wait, it's a river. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. but, uh, no, I neat. think that show captured that weird, um, uh, paradoxical state of state of the river. Yeah, I'm waiting for the big Melrose Place Fairfax crossover hmm. because those streets aren't that far apart. Yeah. Yeah, fine. But uh, you could have the intersection of Fairfax and, and Melrose Place. And just that, yeah. That'd be a funny. I'm just unfamiliar that. with Melrose Place. That's why I'm oh, unfortunately no unable to riff. But oh, that's OK. You know what? I, I pretty much expended my entire knowledge of Melrose Place by when I say the title, because I, I really don't much know that much about it. Mm -hmm. But um, it was part of the, the soapy Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, cool. Uh, Primetime stuff. But uh, mm -hmm. Sunset Boulevard. That's a great yeah. know, LA entertainment. Yeah. My entire LA geography knowledge comes from Lana Del Rey songs. <laughs> really? Mine was from a TV show called Adam 12 when I was a kid, of reruns mm -hmm. of it, because they were two beat cops. Uh, Adam 12 is their call sign. And they'd be in their patrol car and they, the radio would come on and say, you know, see the man, see the man at Fairfax and Third Street, you know. And, Mm -hmm. um, that and Johnny Carson uh, with his jokes about the Coanga Pass and the Slauson Cutoff and stuff. These were words mm -hmm. I, Rancho Cucamonga, I heard them when I was a kid. I was like, are these real? There's a place <laughs> called Rancho Cucamonga? Like, um, is it near like Constantinople or is it, you know, where is it? Um, but uh, now it's, uh, it's interesting to drive around and see all those places that I grew up knowing but not knowing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> no that's how it, it kind of appears to be in my head like I've got this idea of semi-mythical places like Laurel Canyon but I know that until I, I actually go there it, it'll probably be much different that's how it was going to New York <laughs> sure yeah exactly exactly mm -hmm. yeah like well how far is it from Manhattan to Harlem you know like in, you know uh, I have these words in my head and then to to attach them to actual yeah. uh, you know, geographic measurements and stuff is, is uh, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. How have, have you found the representation of LA as a city to have changed um, over the course of, you know, your media experience from, what was that, Adam 12? Yeah, to, since Adam 12 when I was a to, kid. To Fairfax, yeah. Yeah, there's, that's interesting. Um, I think, I think, it's probably it's more nuanced because just because entertainment seems more uh, television especially seems more sophisticated in its storytelling and less kind of uh, vague and, and just two-dimensional you know I think things have to be smarter now um, just mm -hmm. because of the progression of the audience sophistication uh, there you know but um, I think the representation of LA it could be 
it's just like anything on television. It depends on the show, I guess. You know, and some of the shows are they they are going to uh, you know sort of inflate and uh, simplify and 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 kind of uh, go in broad strokes, and those can be either frustrating or silly. But you know, sometimes you get real depth. Um, I think LA, it's not, it's treated better than it used to be in things. Like I remember like it was, it was hard to see anything in the late seventies or eighties that wasn't, that was about LA that wasn't kind of hating LA. Like mm-hmm. uh, even if it was doing it just to pander to the audience. Uh, but you know, you think about things like the player or, um, uh, you know, anything that depicted Hollywood pretty you know pretty it's always about the agents you know that's what people's mm-hmm. impression of hollywood is not the actors really which is kind of funny um but i think yeah i think there's less knocking knocks on la i think la gets a, a doesn't get the raw deal it did in uh, maybe the 80s mm-hmm. yeah what did you think of once upon a time in hollywood I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really fun. Um, mm-hmm. I, I thought there was a there was a real excitement to seeing Tarantino play with historical figures, you know, and uh, and you knew it would be controversial. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. get, having somebody knock out Bruce Lee is going to stir up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but I did. I did like the evocation of of Los Angeles and the way it navigated the city's kind of reputation for being a dreamland and also being you know a womb of incredible darkness that's right that yeah that's right and tarantino's done a spectacular yeah. job of putting la on on the screen you know uh jackie brown pulp fiction reservoir dogs I mean, yeah. there's you know really really good versions of la i did a a, a car drive with him one night um oh, cool. years ago where um, I did a feature where it was called a Quentin Tarantino's Los Angeles, and it was for the LA oh. Times uh, calendar weekend section. All right, set the scene for us. It was like um, well, the article, the assignment was to do the story. Um, the LA Times had a Thursday section that was like looking forward to the weekend. Here's all the things you can do this weekend, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, over the course of a year, it you know, have to do that 52 times. Sometimes you're you're struggling to find something new angle. So the angle of the story I got was um, one of the editors, uh, uh, Sherry Stern, asked me if I would, you know, get in touch with Quentin Tarantino and see if we could do a thing on his LA, his favorite coffee shop, his favorite bar, his favorite restaurant, his favorite theater, his favorite you know bookstore, and uh, and then go drive around with him a little bit, um, and then use that as a way to also talk about his films and stuff like that. And it was great. The, um, the My main memory of it uh, was being in his car and he had, uh, he's driving and he's, he's, he talks a lot and he talks really fast. And, um, and I'm a talker, but um, I was overwhelmed by him by the end of the night. I was like mentally kind of, it's exhausting. Um, just the references and, and I'm a reference guy too. And I realized that he was kind of, if I mentioned a, um, a reference and I was trying to impress him, it would just, he would compete. Um, and then that doesn't lead to a very good interview. You know, it makes it a little sour, I think. And once I realized that, I, I kind of 
uh, went in a different direction. But uh, we got along great. Um, he has an extremely large skull, like his head's really big uh, on his body. And um, has to hold the references. Yeah, exactly. And um, I remember being in his car and he has this big muscle car, it was a, a new one. And it has that real throaty rumbling mm. engine. And it was in yellow and, um, and black. So it was in the Kill Bill, the, uh, the Uma Thurman. Oh, nice. It matched her outfit. Like it was very clearly, when if you saw it, you would say, oh, wow, it looks like Kill Bill. Um, and he had a bobblehead of himself on the dashboard. And so as we were driving around, he would look at me and he would talk and he wouldn't look where he was going, which made me really nervous. Uh, and his bobblehead was bobbling and his head was bobbling and it was, uh, it was a lot, but, uh, <laughs> um, I enjoyed his company and he's, it's a very bright guy and, um, mm -hmm. he's a little defensive around the press, you know, yeah. this was a very non-confrontational story. This was a very, thank you for helping us do this thing. Mm -hmm. and we want to make sure we do a good job of show your version of LA, but he's still a little uh, prickly and ready to uh, defend himself, even if he's not being kind of uh, asked to or, or not being required to be. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, he's a, he's a yeah. fun guy. Isn't the, the little car in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is yellow too, right? There was a lot of yeah. yellow in that movie, Sharon Tate's outfit. Yeah. No, it's a happy, happy color. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, um, and Something uh, about driving a yellow car in LA yeah. on a summer night. That's right. That's right. But uh, I love his movies. And, uh, you know, uh, he says he's retiring. And I think it's a real shame. And I, I, mm -hmm. I can't wait for a minute that he can. Because I think even if he does, like after a decade, he'll be back. You know, mm. I just think. Well, is he retiring from all media or is he? Well, he I thought he really just wanted feature. to make 10 movies, right? Yeah. Yeah. For 10 so hopefully films. he can branch into prose as he's done or you know, producing or. Yeah, yeah. It, it'll be interesting though, because he he's such a reference guy and he's such a collage artist in some ways. Yeah. And that's, some people hear that as a pejorative or knock on him and I don't really mean it that way, but he, he takes in so much and then distills it and puts it back out in this beautiful, you know, quilt of uh, references that somehow has greater depth than the originals, uh, which is, you know, one of his great talents. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think he, he's going to be satisfied with books. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I think he's such a yeah. visual artist. Uh, I, I think if you make Pulp Fiction, uh, if you can make Pulp Fiction, you do. And if you, if you can do that, you probably aren't going to do, um, you know, Pulp Fiction, the novelization instead. I just think that, mm -hmm. I think the, he, he's so passionate. I've never heard him talk about a book that he read. I've never heard him not talk about movies he's seen. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's, that's the thing is what his, his intake passion is going to, I think, make it hard for him to, to stick to the page. That's just, mm -hmm. I have no reason to think that other than just my own gut instinct. You know? mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. he would do well on Fairfax. They should have him on Fairfax. Oh, that would be interesting. I wonder how he'd fit in to the, the Fairfax world, like what the common thread would be. Because yeah. I know in, what is that? The second episode, there's a, I don't think it's an actual voice cameo, but it is like a, a, a representation 
little cameo of Denis Villeneuve. Uh-huh. Um, and the, the 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 common thread there is that he's like he's kind of the hipsters filmmaker. Um, I don't know how that will change after after Dune, you know, be being the you know juggernaut that it is. But I think that was the through line that you know all the characters are hipsters and he's like the hipsters hipster. Right. So I That's wonder awesome. how Tarantino would fit in. Maybe the colors, color bright yellow. Yeah. I can I see can. someone in that show going on like a Kill Bill rampage with sirens. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Um yeah, we should we should um we should definitely get those guys back sometime. Um and they uh you know I, I was I noticed also that uh, Matt Teddy and Aaron um have signed uh, a first look deal with Amazon that goes beyond mm-hmm. uh, Fairfax, it's something that uh, Deadline has a story back at the end of October. Um, and so their production company, which is collectively called the Adorable Trio, mm. which I love, which also suggests that they, they have to stick together because you can't have an adorable trio with two people. Yeah. So, but uh, th- I think we got a lot more interesting stuff coming from those guys and I really enjoyed talking to them. And um, I'd love to have the cast members come on sometime and we could do an interview with them in character. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Oh. Definitely. Yeah. So fantastic. Well, I'm going to go look for that whale um, just to make sure that it's not still loose in the LA river. Uh, Tillamook. Tillamook. Yes. <laughs> and uh, get my kayak. All right. Well, awesome. Thanks so much. This has been Mindspace with Jeff Boucher, and it's always so much fun. Yeah, thanks, Maya. And we'll see everybody. Talk to you next week. All right. See you. Bye-bye.